Hello, everybody, and welcome into the I Want to Know podcast. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and I will be the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. Joining me on the show today is author of the new book, The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance, Kate Sukel. But first, before we get to her, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for tuning in, downloading, and telling a friend about the show. I guess you can't really tune in, but either way. It's how the word gets spread about the podcast. And don't forget, if you enjoy this or any of the other interviews from I Want to Know, head over to the guests section at IWantToKnowShow.com. You can find out more about the guests. You can find links to their works, their books, such as The Art of Risk. Speaking of The Art of Risk, I'd like to welcome into the show the author of not only The Art of Risk, this is now a drinking game, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance, but also the author of This Is Your Brain on Sex, Kate Sukul. Kate, how's it going today? It is going very well. Thanks. How are you? I am great. Thank you for hanging out, taking a little time, and, and talking some risk with us. Well, okay. So the art of risk, this is the drinking game rules, a shot or a sip every time we say the art of risk. Yeah, I feel I can, like... I can incorporate that. I, I, I feel like we're... Work. Yeah, we're like six or seven in, and I'm halfway to Drunksville. So this is fantastic. Um, so uh, note, everyone, that's, uh, I think, six so far. You better have your bottles nearby. Mm-hmm. Um so before we get into the book, before we get into all my questions, uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, is kind of what's your background? What makes you qualified to, to write about this kind of stuff? Oh, I'm absolutely unqualified. To, no. Um, so my, my background is actually in neuroscience, um, although uh, my mother would be the first to tell you I did not finish my PhD, <laughs> and it is probably the greatest disappointment of her life. But uh, so my background's in, in neuroscience. And of course, as work has moved forward, we're learning that the brain is the seat of every thought, every feeling, every emotion, um, every instinct. And so I kind of got really into um, when I started writing, trying to answer age old questions using these new scientific techniques. Um, and it, it's been kind of an education, because certainly there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, we still can't really answer um, about what makes us human, what makes us tick. And yet neuroimaging, uh, epigenetic work, genetic work, uh, you know, even old school psychological tasks are telling us a lot about, you know, what it means to be human. And I think that's pretty cool. To find out even more about what we're, you know, how we are a human, what it means to be human. You did uh, something interesting with a functional MRI machine. Hey, that was my ex-boyfriend and he was really, really, but yes. So what I'm known for is having had an orgasm in an fMRI machine. Um, and I, you know, I say unexpectedly, but then people are like, really unexpectedly. Uh, I didn't think it was that salacious though. It went viral on the internet. Um, and so in fact, if you Google my name and orgasm, you can get a picture of my brain um, and how it lights up at the point of orgasm, um, which, you know, it's not nearly as sexy uh, as it sounds, unless you're a brain geek, and in which case it's really, really sexy. But um, you just need to throw a little 70s porn music underneath. Yeah. Bum, 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 <laughs> bum. Um, so, uh, but uh, at the time, you know, this researcher at Rutgers, his name is Barry Kamasarik, fascinating guy. Um, you know, he does these brain imaging studies of the female orgasm. And it's amazing to me. Um, although I guess it shouldn't be given the the current political climate that we're still having discussions like 
can women actually have orgasms at all? Are they even supposed to enjoy sex? <laughs> um, and uh, so when you kind of put in, the, take this line of inquiry, when you're looking at the actual brain to see what happens, um, you know, it gives us a new way to explore the subject. And then, of course, ultimately, maybe find ways to help women who are anorgasmic, um, you know, figure a path forward, find a way to pleasure. So I think that's, that's pretty interesting, too. Yeah, it is really interesting. Was, I mean, obviously, it's not hot and sexy watching your brain light up, but it's interesting to see you know different parts get brighter and darker, and it's it's a it's a cool thing. I I nerd out a little bit on those kind of things. But. It was funny though. I a lot of people found it more uh, sexier than I thought it would. Oh. so I got all kinds of weird letters and emails after. Um, the book came out, and then there was also a story in New Scientist magazine. And um, apparently, the appropriate response to seeing a, a picture of brain activity at the point of orgasm is to send a picture of your penis. Mm. And um, so uh, I didn't know that. It wasn't in my Emily Post etiquette guide. <laughs> but now you know. I apologize for not following protocol. <laughs> well, it's okay. <laughs> we'll let it slide. Yeah, please. Um, all right, guys, get your drinks ready. But let's talk about the art of risk. The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Um, first of all, if I may pay you a, a small compliment, um, a lot of books I come across, whether for the show or otherwise, that are you know science-related, is very much dumbed down so that everyone can read it. And this was not. This, was, uh, this had a lot of nerd talk, a lot of uh, you know, technical terms for parts of the brain. And I actually I really enjoyed – I'll never be able to recite them. Please don't test me. But I really enjoyed learning about that and learning all these new things that I'd never even heard of. So mm -hmm. I like that a lot. So, okay, we're not going to play pin the tail on the ventromedial prefrontal cortex? Not unless we have a few okay. more shots. All right. That would be um, necessary. No, I, you know, it's interesting to me because I think neuroscience, another thing, you know, as we're learning how important the brain is to everything, um, it's amazing to me how much some of these things are, are coming up more and more. And we're sort of getting into this, this area of folk neuroscience. And certainly people aren't coming up and talking about, oh, my ventral medial prefrontal cortex made me do it or what have you. But, you know, you do hear people talking about, oh, that's your amygdala talking or, um, you know, gosh, you know, I got to get my my executive control centers, my frontal lobes, you know, onto this one. Mm -hmm. And so I think having a working knowledge of, of these different areas and how scientists are learning that they're working together and sometimes working against each other to result in behavior is, is a good thing to have. It's a good foundation um, especially when uh, we don't act quite as rationally as most of us think we should. Right. I, and I think that's really sort of fascinating. You go back to Daniel Kahneman's, uh, you know, thinking fast and slow, and it talks all about the fast thinking systems and the slow thinking systems in the brain, which are, these are great analogies, you know, the gas and the brakes. Yeah. Um, and they really sort of do explain why we fall short. We think of ourselves as being very rational, very logical people. Um, but so often when we are faced with a decision we do not choose wisely That's for um, sure. and understanding sort of how the brain works and these shortcuts gives us more insight into why we don't choose wisely all the time. And I think that's becoming more and more important, especially as neuroscience and genetic work is, is coming forward. We're going to need to have at least a basic vocabulary um, to discuss this stuff, both for, for health and for behavior. Yeah. And it's becoming more mainstream on even more of a, uh, you know, dumbed i don't want to say dumbed down but you know uh, easier simpler level of of people are starting to realize like oh i'm a left brain you know leaning learner or right brain learner and it's and it's becoming interesting to see how people learn based on what side of their brain is quote unquote more strong i guess 
Yeah, although you talked to the guy, um, Michael Gazaniga, who um, actually pioneered the left brain right brain research. And he's like, ah, I had no idea that people would take it that far. <laughs> um, you know, it's actually the left brain right brain thing is one of my biggest pet peeves because it's not exactly accurate. You know, he was working with epileptics who had had the corpus callosum cut. So these are the connections that um, these neural fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. Mm. Um, and so he could sort of, but this whole idea that one side is is more artistic and the other side is more rational uh, doesn't quite work that way. And in fact, as we're learning more about default networks, um, you know, basically thinking is a whole brain kind of exercise, at least, you know, in healthy people. And um, I, it's interesting how his left brain and right brain work has really been co-opted to explain learning styles, to explain, uh, you know, creativity um, in a lot of ways that he never expected when he when he did this work, when yeah. he does this kind of work. And you interview him about it and he's like, don't blame me. I had nothing to do with it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's definitely, like I said, it's a folk kind of neuroscience. And, and just the other day, somebody was telling me that uh, they were, they were a little frightened. They were coming out of a store late at night and um, she, you know, got a little freaked out. She's like, I know that was just my amygdala talking to me, oh, but, geez. and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That works. Very good. Um, you know, talking about right and left brain, one of the studies in your book was a study, um, it was a study of men with a coin under boxes and they had to choose, and it was different colored boxes, and you had to choose which one uh, they thought the coin was under. Mm-hmm. And in the study, they were zapping either the right side or the left side of their skull and getting right. different results. And that was really mm-hmm. interesting. One of the things I thought about, uh, you know, is that kind of like, you know, zapping one side or the other, is that kind of similar to being, you know, drunk or on drugs or something? <laughs> it could be. So uh, this is a technique that's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And that study was also sort of done with uh, DCS, which is direct uh, stimulation, electro, uh, I don't remember what the C stands for off the top of my head. Oops. Direct current. Current. Yeah. Direct current to stimulation. Thank you. Um, and, uh, so when I was a graduate student, I actually participated in, um, a TMS study. And so they zapped my brain to try to disrupt processing and, it was an awful lot like a brain fart. Um, you know, like you're in the middle of saying something, you can't quite find the word or, right. you know, and it was bizarre how you would just hear this because it makes a sound when they zap you. Um, and then all of a sudden it was like, wait, what was I doing again? Where am I? What's going on? Um, how quickly it really disrupts processing. Um, so, you know, the left and right stuff, um, the scientists are interested in that from how everything is connected up. So it's not so much a left brain, right brain thing. It's more like, okay, where where do we see the circuit um, being disconnected so that this behavior or this decision can't be made anymore? Um, but I think what's really interesting about that is that they were able to really change the kind of bets that people made because you you had to make a guess or or put a bet down on um, what kind of what color boxes rather mm-hmm. um, this token would be under. Um, and by just zapping that part of the frontal cortex, this part that is so involved with sort of, you know, calculating out, uh, probabilities and, and calculating out risk, people took much bigger risks. They threw a lot more money down on these situations that they shouldn't have. And I thought that was fascinating and it worked in both ways. So that, you know, they stimulate it. So there's more activity in this area. You become more risk averse, you stimulate it in a, a different way. So there's less activity and you're taking more risks. And the fact that they could do it both ways, 
I think is really interesting. And it just shows how important this circuit is to helping us, you know, really grok out a risky situation and figure out where we should be laying down our coins when it comes time to, uh, you know, make a monetary gamble. Yeah. Could, could this be useful, you know, say people with anxiety or, or convincing me to go sing karaoke? Could I get zapped a few times and actually get me up on stage? Well, I'm just going to say the art of risk, the art of risk, the art of risk, like 10 more times. And then the karaoke <laughs> That's the only is way. done. Um, but, you know, I, I think people are looking at that way. And certainly there's plenty of work now that's been looking at direct brain stimulation um, where they actually kind of they, they would call it like, um, you know, a pacemaker for your brain. So people with Parkinson's and then people with depression, they get um, these little pacemakers put in their brain to stimulate activity hmm. to help them. Um, and there's been some talk about maybe that's the way to go as well um, for people with anxiety. Is there a way to kind of either uh, reduce or increase activity in certain brain areas to help them not get into that? I don't want to say I hate the word. Cra- I want to say crazy making, but I don't want to say crazy because <laughs> anxiety isn't craziness. It's you know it's a mental health issue, but right. um, but so you don't get into this like feedback loop where you're really just getting overly anxious and and unable to function. So these are things that people are looking at for the future, and certainly you know direct uh, brain stimulation is is one way that they're working on that in Parkinson's disease and and in depression. So it's not that far fetched to think that maybe it could be used for people who are either severely risk averse, agoraphobic, severely anxious. Or alternatively, you know, the other way around. One of the things about Parkinson's disease, we think about it often as a movement disorder because of the tremors. And certainly those are the most visible symptoms of the disorder. Right, yeah. But Parkinson's disease, long before the tremors arise, people have a lot of problems with decision making. They they get stuck. They have Hmm. trouble deciding. And in fact, some of the drugs that are used to treat Parkinson's disease – then push that into overdrive. So they have all kinds of problems in terms of more too much risk-taking, hypersexuality, hypergambling. Um, they, they just can't vet it out the right way anymore. So little changes uh, through drugs, through devices, through stimulation um, can lead to pretty phenomenal and, and uh, sometimes really bad changes in how, how the brain is, is really sort of subtly um, and, and carefully vetting out these risk calculations. Interesting. Um, all right. Do you think that there is a risk gene? <laughs> um, you know, I love if there were, because, uh, you know, it makes, it makes the story so much easier, but of course, with the exception of diseases like, um, cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, there are really no diseases that come down to a single gene. Um, and when we're thinking about something as complex as behavior, um, you know, the difference in the way that we perceive the world is going to be influenced by hundreds, if not thousands of genes. And these slight little variants mean that, you know, I'm running basically a slightly different algorithm in my head. So if we use the whole analogy of the brain being a computer, that it's trying to calculate out these risks before we make a decision, um, what that means is my particular genetic makeup means that I'm running an algorithm at a slightly different frequency than you are. 
And while these changes may be very small, they may be almost, you know, indiscernible uh, from one decision to the next. Um, and this is one of the things I loved about one of the cultural anthropologists and a, a genetics researcher I spoke to. His name is Jay Koji Lum. He said these little differences over time add up to very different lives lived. And I think that it is very true. Um, we have seen that there are genes of interest that probably contribute to risk-taking behavior. Um, so, of course, a do there's a dopamine receptor gene um, called DRD4, mm -hmm. which comes up a lot. Um, and studies have shown that if you have a particular variant of this gene, it's called the 7R+, so repeats of a, of a certain section of this gene over and over again, you're more likely to be sensation-seeking. You're more likely to um, participate in risky sex and one-night stands. Uh, you're more likely to bet high on a risky monetary gamble. Um, and uh, you're more likely to bet high on that uh, nursing home favorite bridge. And if you've ever gone to the nursing home and watched grandma play bridge, these people are cutthroat, man. So it's, it was worth looking at. Yeah, they're evil. Um, they are. They're mean. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to me. And of course, DRD4 has also been linked to impulsive behavior um, and sort of, you know, the things that we typically think of as, as risky behavior, driving too fast, uh, risky sexual behavior, uh, drug addiction. Um, it's also been linked to ADHD, stuff like that. Um, so it kind of gives this picture that it probably contributes to people being more likely to fly by the seat of their pants. Maybe they need a little bit more stimulation to keep going. And of course, there are other genes that have been identified that are also, um, you know, probably contribute to whether somebody is more or less likely to take a risk. Uh, one of them is MAOA. They, uh, there was a New York Times op-ed a few years ago that tried to really distill this down into the warrior versus the warrior. So the warrior as in like throwing a spear versus the warrior, which is me, you know, the Jewish mother hiding in the <laughs> closet worrying about her, whether or not her child you know, her 45-year-old child, that is, has Oops. left that morning wearing socks. Um, so, and they say that differences in this particular gene, you know, depend whether or not you're more sort of extroverted or whether you're more anxious. Um, but it's, it's, it's an oversimplified story. Um, and, and again, it's all of these genes are working together to create this, this circuit in the brain. Um, you know, basically it, it, it helps shape how it works, um, how much of certain neurochemicals are released or accepted by the, the cells in that circuit, and how ultimately we end up vetting and then, you know, deciding on whether or not to take a risk. So that was a really long answer to a very simple question. So is there one <laughs> risk gene? No, but there are a lot that probably play a role into how our brains develop and how we ultimately end up, you know, approaching risk. Yeah, one of the examples you gave in the art of art of risk, take a drink, um, was the DRD4 gene that you you spoke of, and the example you gave was it could lead or has a tendency to lead uh, people to say f have a nasty fall on the slopes, get back yes. up and start snowboarding again. Um, so yeah, there was actually a study, and these are the studies I love because it, uh, there's another one further in the book that looks at. Uh, you know, skateboarders uh, attempting tricks with attractive women around, but um, which also gets linked back to dopamine. Um, but yeah, in this particular task, uh, you know, what they looked at was 
this this seminar plus variant what they found was in snowboarders if they injured themselves if they had this variant they were much more likely to not only get back out there um but you know really push themselves to to do these these crazy tricks again whereas if you didn't have that you might be like okay maybe the snowboarding is a bad idea i just totally <laughs> ripped apart my knee uh, maybe I don't need to get back out there quite yet, or maybe I should just start slower. And so I think that's interesting. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I love to ski. I'm a little nerdier than the snowboarders, but I've had some nasty, nasty falls. And as soon as I can walk again, it's like, all right, time to go back up to the black diamond. <laughs> um, See, and I might be the one who's like riding on the back of my ski. It, my son actually, uh, demolished his ankle. Mm. Um, he's, he's 11 now, but it was about a year ago we were in, um, you know, Wyoming and he went sledding and demolished his ankle. And before then he was fearless. I mean, he's been, as a seven year old, you know, he went snorkeling with sharks and I mean like real sharks, like hammerheads and went in the Galapagos, you know, he's, he's never said no to an adventure, but after this, he's been kind of like, you know, I don't know if I want to do this mom because I don't want to break my arm. <laughs> um, and it, it's been interesting to see how this one experience has really shaped the way that he considers whether something's worth doing or not now. And I'm guessing he probably doesn't, yeah, he doesn't have a seven R plus variant. I'm guessing. But. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to see Like I wonder, and obviously we won't know for a few years, but as he like reaches his teen years, if that'll kind of go back to how it was and being more risky again. You know, I, it's funny. He's gotten better in the lab that for the first six months, it was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that, mom. <laughs> no, mom, that's dangerous. I mean, he actually at one point we were, I mean, I say we were cracking up. We walked away from him. So we, he didn't feel bad at the time, but he was like, mom, life is dangerous. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I, you know, it's all you can do not to start quoting, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings and how, what happens when you step out your door. Um, but it, it, he's starting to get better. He's starting to get the experience to know that maybe that was a one-off. And uh, he's not that keen on trying sledding again, mind well. you. But um, we're about to go on vacation. And he's he's fine with you know trying some snooba and, and maybe having a few other adventures. All his vacation photos will be hashtag life is dangerous. You know, I think I'm actually going to just tattoo that on his chest. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. The girls will love it. Oh, yeah, they will. Oh man. Um, do you think that the same sort of uh, risky behavior, you know, I love to go skydiving. Like, does that lead me to go skydiving? The same, you know, DRD four or seven R plus. <laughs> See, no, I, so again, you know, it's not just DRD four, there's going to be a whole bunch of other genes that right. are in the mix. Um, and here's the tricky part. So, and, and this is a really good part, but it, it's the tricky part. So for so long, because we weren't able to really look at genes, we weren't able to look at the brain scans, we weren't able to look at, so, you know, really delve down and, and get a glimpse into people's brains. We used a lot of terms interchangeably. So risk-taking was often used synonymously with impulsive behavior. It was often used, um, you know, synonymously with sensation-seeking behavior. Okay. Um, and certainly I, I can picture this as a nice Venn diagram where, you know, they all overlap. Um, but we talk about risk-taking often like it's a personality trait. It's this person that needs more stimulation in their life. They're more impulsive. They push the envelope. And the interesting thing is, is that what scientists are learning is that risk-taking isn't a trait. It is a decision-making process. When you distill it down to its simplest definition, it is just any decision in which the outcome is uncertain and that potentially, you know, that potential outcome could be negative. And of course, the other side of that coin is, you know, where there's danger, there's also opportunity. 
Um, so in society, we talk about risk in these huge extremes. One of them is, of course, it's dangerous. It's going to lead to bankruptcy, death, injury, all the worst things in life. But then we turn it around and it's the stuff that makes you, right? Um, it, you know, he who dares wins. Risk or, mm-hmm. you know, big, win big. Um, and we, all of our heroes, all the people that we, we emulate take the, are, tend to be risk takers or we think of them as risk takers. But it really is just a process. So the good news about that means that it's a process that all of us can um, harness to our own advantage once we understand sort of how the brain, uh, you know, handles uncertainty. And so that's a great thing. Um, but it also makes us understand that um, none of us are immune to risk either the kind that we choose or the, the kind that chooses us. So why do you like to skydive? <laughs> well, if we break it down into why some people go for extreme sports or extreme jobs or what have you, it probably started with, you know, some familiarity. Um, and what's funny, I don't actually have the statistic in front of me, but it, it, somebody showed this to me years ago when I went skydiving. Um, you know, and it was basically like, oh, skydiving is coming, becoming like so blase. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> um, it's like running a marathon these days. Every, you know, a lot of people try it once they go right. tandem or what have you. Um, and that is familiarity and opportunity. I would say most of us, you know, we kind of think that skydiving is dangerous because we don't know all that much about it, but most of us know at least one person who's done it and survived. Most of us would think, okay, wait, maybe I'll try it once, you know, tied to some other guy who knows what he's doing. Yeah. 50 years ago, you know, the only way that you were jumping out of a plane with a parachute is if you were storming a beach at Normandy, right? Exactly. You know, I, I mean, and so that's, it's very different. It's not like it was a um, leisure activity. It wasn't something that was open to just everybody. And so as you get more opportunity, as you get more familiarity, it's not that big a deal. So why do some people end up actually going skydiving or maybe after that first tandem jump going back and trying to get their accelerated freefall license? But that may just be being more comfortable with stress and stimulation. So again, sensation seeking is a term that's often used interchangeably with risk taking, but it's a little bit different. There are some people that just need more stimulation in life. Um, And if you go back initially to the research, uh, one of the pioneering social psychologists in this area, Marvin Zuckerman, Um, And this is such a 70s kind of research study, right? Um, He put people in um, sensory deprivation chambers, like the kind that Michael Jackson used to sleep in or whatever. (laughs) Um, And he found that some people just cannot take it. You know, some people, I I would like to think that I would be in there for an hour and I'd just be blissed out and, and, you know, take a nap. Yes, please. Um, But some people after 30 seconds, they're banging on the windows, let me out, let me out. They cannot take it. That lack of stimulation, it, it just wigs them out. Um, and so these people may be more likely to look for more intensity in their lives. And that's whether they're, um, you know, in the kind of work they do, whether they're on Wall Street or maybe at a higher stress kind of gig um, in a company, startups. They may be more likely to skydive or drag race or participate in, um, you know, sports that have that more intensity, those black diamond trails. Um or they, if they don't have opportunities to do those things, they may just be more likely to come home at night and pick a fight with their spouse mm. over having green beans again for dinner. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just a matter of needing a certain amount of stimulation, a certain amount of stress to feel comfortable. Um, and that probably does come down to, you know, genetics certainly, but it probably also comes down to environments, um, 
because some people are raised in that kind of high stimulation environment. And so that's what they're used to. And that's what their brain gets used to. So would you say that uh, stimulation and stress are very closely related to each other? They can be. Yeah. Um, so of stress, the scientific definition is, you know, any situation that exceeds the regulatory uh, capacity of an organism. So it's something that's too basically right at either right at the edge or too much for you to handle. Okay. Um, but of course, we've co-opted stress in our day to day. And it's the thing that we feel when we're pushing ourselves to finish something or accomplish something or what have you. It's not really beyond um, you know, our capacity, it, it may just feel pretty intense. Yeah. So I think that the way that we actually talk about stress, um, in day-to-day -day life really is more about stimulation. Some people, you know, just think about something as simple as a final exam or, or a final essay for a class. You have some of those people that the second week of the semester are starting to work on that final paper. It's worth 50% of my grade. I need to get a, you know, do a good job. I need to get started now because I'm worried about I won't be have access to the books I need. Yeah, not and, me. Yeah, that's not me either. I yeah. think those people are insane. Right. Um, I can't get going. I can't get pushed until I, I feel the threat of the deadline looming. And so, and, and that's the way that I'm built. And so, I, you know, that kind of stress, it's, it's also a motivating force, right? It, it gets you up there. It gets you, um, moving, it gets you achieving. Um, and, and so it's not, it's not a bad thing. We've certainly made stress to be this terrible thing that's supposed to be avoided at all costs, but it's clear more and more, especially when we look at achievement, athletic performance, you know, you need a certain amount of stress to get you motivated and to keep moving you forward and to keep you working. Yeah, I think I think stress and stimulation again, another little Venn diagram. They're yeah. not exactly the same, but there's there's enough in common that we use them interchangeably. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you talk about uh, you know not doing your final until the night before or whatever. That was that was very much me. I couldn't even think about starting it unless there was some huge deadline looming over me because it just I would sit there and stare at a book and not do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it made my mother crazy. Uh, now, you know, even with like, say with this podcast, it, you know, goes up and I always say, Oh, you know, Sunday, I'll get the podcast all ready to go up on Wednesday. And then sure enough, Tuesday night at 1230, I'm finally finishing. I bet your girlfriend loves that about you too. Oh, she hates it. I told her to go to bed and she just, no, I'll wait for you. It's like, just go to bed. And then she hates and that, me. But you know what? That gives you some extra motivation and some extra stress to get it done. There's a purpose to all this. Yeah. It's it's coming up roses. Yes. Um, and my girlfriend's so, the opposite. She's the one that starts her final a couple weeks early. I don't understand her. No. But we you're probably lucky to have her. She's gonna you guys are gonna balance each other out over the over the long term, probably. Hopefully. So this is this is a good thing. <laughs> Hopefully so. Um, speaking, well, I guess speaking of that, this kind of leads me to my next question. Uh, ADD is ADD. Is there like a link between having ADD and, and risk taking? Um, okay. So this, there is a link between um, ADHD and impulsive behavior. So this can often be, you know, sort of when we talk about impulsive behavior, um, this is fly by the seat of your pants, not thinking about long-term consequences kind of behavior. Um, and so I'm going to give another example of my son, um, you know, uh, when he was two or three, we, we lived in Europe at the time. And so there are all these great little cafes that have pastries and chocolate cakes and what have you, but the tables are really close together. Okay. Um, and he wanted a piece of chocolate cake and I told him no, because he needed to eat his food first or whatever. But there was this little old lady sitting at the table next to us who ordered some chocolate cake 
and they Uh delivered it to the table and my son literally swiped it off her plate. (laughs) Now in a toddler, this is adorable. And I tell this story all the time, but imagine if he was 16 or 35. Get punched. (laughs) Yes. This is not okay. You know, it's funny. Um, but basically what you see is that same kind of, uh, toddler impulse, um, in a, in a lot of kids as they age, they should have matured out of it because they don't have sort of the brake systems in place, those frontal lobe systems, um, to tell them no, or at least not right now. Um, and those are the kind of risk-taking behaviors that are often studied in the epidemiological world, right? These are the things that lead to incarceration, substance abuse, uh, and of course death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a certain amount of impulsive behavior that gets linked back to ADHD. But anybody who studies ADHD would be the first to tell you, you know, you've seen one kid with ADHD, you've seen one kid with ADHD. Um, they're all so different and, and it's probably more of a collection of a bunch of different disorders, um, where the brain is just not regulating, um, attention and focus, um, so that you can have this kind of executive control, um, over what you should be paying attention to when, and when you should be controlling these impulse behaviors. So yeah, there is some link. Um, but what's really fascinating about ADHD is that certain types of it, this is what the military looks for, um, for special forces operators and certain elite soldiers. They want them. Yes. Because, um, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, ADHD often in terms of squirrel, you know, um, you, you just can't focus on anything, but in fact, you know, kids with ADHD often have extreme focus on the things that motivate them. In fact, they, they have laser focus that it's really hard to get them off of it. Um, and so the military and even, you know, with programming and certain other things actually looks for those traits in certain employees because, um, you know, when, when used for, for good instead of evil, it can be, uh, a really powerful thing. Um, a, a mind that works that way. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, you know, relating it back to say taking out Osama bin Laden, you need someone who's going to just pull that trigger. And not only that, but who isn't going to stop when they're, you know, storm in that house and all of a sudden three guys with guns are coming at you. Um, it's being able to know that, that plan for the, um, you know, to get into the house inside out. It's about helping to plan it. It's about, you know, keeping your cool and not letting those little voices in your head say, wait, maybe this is a bad idea. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Can, uh, I guess we'll call it early risk taking. Can that become a habit as you age into adulthood? You know, I think that as we can't become a habit. So the brain is really set up to to become habitual. It likes habits. If we really oversimplify the brain's job, if we were to say the brain has one job, we could just say it's in the prediction business. Um, We have like a little, you know, uh, you know, Zoltar in our head (laughs) trying to figure out what's going to be happening next. And that makes sense, right? Because the world is a big and a busy place and all this sensory information is coming in and it's the brain's job to figure out what you need to pay attention to, what's vital, what's important so that you can survive and hopefully thrive. So, you know, it wants to take shortcuts because there is so much information out there. So it can, you know, categorize and sort of, I guess, uh, you know, prioritize what's important, what's not. 
So I think when it comes to taking risks and, and becoming habit, I think we be, can become a lot more comfortable with uncertainty. We be, can become a lot more comfortable with intensity. Um, and I think that's kind of important because it, it helps us later on deal with, you know, the stresses that the world uh, throws at us and not just the stresses that we, you know, take on ourselves. Um, so everything ultimately becomes habitual. So I think when we talk about trying to make risk-taking more of a habit, uh, it's the right kind of risk-taking. It's about being prepared. It's about, you know, uh, being able to minimize uh, the unknowns to a manageable set. Uh, It's about having enough experience a certain area where when your brain does take shortcuts, those shortcuts actually make sense. Um, and that's probably, again, a longer answer to a very short question. Love it. Nope. It's great. Um, take a drink. In the Art of Risk, you mentioned <laughs> uh, that you were a very risky, quote unquote, risky person and that it was harder as you got older to kind of, it was weird to kind of tone that down a little bit. I mean, do you think that was kind of a, a habit formed and then it was hard to break that habit of, you know, quick, irrational decisions and be more, you know, more rational and slower thinking? <sighs> Um, well, the problem was all of a sudden, you know, I, I turned 40 and I lost my mojo completely, you know, instead of, uh, having, you know, people normally think of a midlife crisis as, you know, getting the, the sports car and, uh, the young, sexy, uh, boyfriend. And I wasn't having those kind of urges. I was having the kind of urges, like buy a nice, reliable station wagon, join the PTO (laughs) and, oh my gosh, there's another law and order SVU marathon on this weekend. (laughs) Clear the schedule. Right. Um, You know, and I really wondered what was behind that. Was that my age? Was that that some kind of defense mechanism? Did I not have the right people whispering bad ideas in my ear? What was going on? And of course, it was a combination of all of it. Um, But there's been a lot of work. And there was actually a new study that just came out this week that made the news that shows that as we get older, um, we become more risk averse. And certainly some of that is, you know, our bodies don't work quite as well as they used to. Um, You know, we have more at stake. Mm -hmm. We have the experience to know better in theory. But what fascinated me was so many of the risk-taking researchers I spoke with, the scientists, they were like, you know, older people, when they come into our lab, they would probably do better if they were more willing to take a risk, if they didn't automatically say no. Um, And I thought that was fascinating. So in the past, you know, since the book came out, I've been really trying to not say no so much or at least ask myself, okay, wait a minute, why is my initial reaction to this no or even sometimes hell no? Um, (laughs) you know, is if I did this, what could the positives be? And if it were all negatives, would the loss actually be too great to bear? Um, and so I find I push myself and I get a lot more motivation, a lot more joy, and, uh, of course a lot more learning in the process. So. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, um, very cool. You did a, a Ted med talk. Yes. Which I mean, was, was that a lot of fun? That seemed really cool. It was fun. Um, you know, for me, again, I'm I'm a big nerd. And so all these people who are doing these fascinating things, uh, just I was in my element. I was probably like a total nerd groupie the whole time. In the nerd um, zone. I was totally in the nerd zone. Oh, my gosh. I probably, yeah. I was like an 11-year-old girl at a Justin Bieber concert. <laughs> um know. Oh no, yes. Uh so it was it was a lot of fun and it was interesting to see how people are using technology and are using these really innovative approaches to solve 
problems. Um, one of my favorite talks at that session is a guy named Jeff Karp, and he uses bio-inspiration. Um, so he finds like, you know, animals and like he, he's created this skin adhesive for surgeries hmm. that's uh, like based on the webbed toes of geckos and uh, I mean, just all wow. kinds of fascinating stuff. Yeah. He uses jellyfish tentacles to try to get rid of like tumors. I mean, just the way his mind works. He looks at, he says that evolution has solved so many of these challenges, um, you know, in a natural way. We just need to figure out how to harness them so that we can apply them in the, in these novel situations. And the way he does that is really cool. And I think actually a great example of risk-taking. He is approaching, you know, a, an old problem in a very novel and unique way. And he's doing his homework, right? He's going back to, okay, so how did Mother Nature handle this? Forget these plastics and this, that, and the other. What what are the chemicals on, on you know, the gecko's feet that make them sticky? Or what's, hmm. you know, in this particular animal that allows them to do this or that? And how can we, you know, make something like that? So he's awesome. So anyway, there were a lot of people <laughs> like that there. So I was like, oh, imposter syndrome. I should not be here. <laughs> No, that that I mean that guy sounds you know incredibly smart and interesting. I should find what was his name? Jeff Carp. Actually, you should Jeff talk Karp. to him. He's he's brilliant. Yes, I want to look up his video. That sounds awesome. But what I was going to talk to you about with, with your talk there is is you mentioned what you were discussing a minute ago about um, older people should take risks. Yeah, should should get out of their comfort comfort zones a little bit. Uh, you know, what type of risks should we take? Is it just something, you know, like what defines it? Like something that's uncomfortable. Like should I soberly go up and sing karaoke? I think, yes, actually, I think you should start no. right now. You ready? I got chills, they're multiplying. I'm sorry, we're no, having um, connection problems here. This uh, is, uh... <laughs> I think, you know, it doesn't have to be big risks. This isn't about, you know, throwing yourself out of airplanes or, you know, deciding to chuck your job and go backpack in Myanmar for the year. Um, it, it really is about, it can, it can be little things that over time create really big benefits. And that's, really sort of embracing novelty. So you can take tango lessons. You can get up and do karaoke sober. Um, <laughs> but if that's not what motivates you, it can be other things. So, you know, you say you love skiing. Why not take a snowboarding lesson and see how that fares? Yeah. Why not, you know, um, go to a different mountain. Don't just hit the same place that you've had the ski pass every winter for every year for the <laughs> last six years. You know, finally decide to go, you know what, I, I want to go to Stowe or I want to go out to Tahoe or whatever. I'm going to make it different this time. Yeah. Um, it can be about, you know, making date night with your significant other, not the same dinner in the movie um, that it always is because this goes back to this whole thing about the brain wanting to fall into habit. And we all do it. Even the most interesting man in the world probably has his favorite restaurant and his favorite dish at that restaurant and is more inclined to order it every time he goes, you know? Um, so it's pushing away some of that habit and saying, you know what, tonight I'm going to get away from the spaghetti carbonara. I know <laughs> I'm wild. I'm extreme. I'm going for the pesto. Pushing the limits. Exactly. But even little things like that, what it's doing, again, if we go back to this whole idea of the brain as a prediction machine, it's giving your brain new information. It's it's giving it some novelty. It's helping it set it up so it, it can encounter things in the future. So when you go to your boss's dinner party and look down and see some weird green stuff, you can say, oh, that looks a lot like pesto. I bet that's good. Um, so it, it really is like little things. But they, you know, this risk-taking and this novel embracing of novelty – 
it brings joy. It gives the brain more information. It's motivating. It allows you to talk with your spouse about something other than just what the kids are doing or not doing or, you know, the same kind of movie that you guys always go to. Um, it just opens up your world a little bit more and makes you a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty and intensity and helps you, of course, figure out what you really like and what you really don't like as opposed to just those gut reactions. Eh, I don't think I like that. Well, how do you know? We say it to kids all the time. How do you know until you try? That's true. I hate broccoli. Uh, how do you know? How do you know? Give it a try. Yeah. You only just got to try it once, you know, <laughs> but we, we don't have those same standards for ourselves. And and certainly with the free range kids movement, there's been a big push to say, okay, we need to stop helicoptering our kids. They need to get out there in the world and they need to try things. They need to climb trees. They need to run around. They don't have to be watched every five minutes. And we want them to do this because they gain critical life skills. They learn how to problem solve. They learn how to work well with others. They learn how to take initiative. Um, they learn how to emotionally regulate. They learn how to deal with stress. And of course, they learn their own physical limits, which is really important. Um, and of course, we think, well, okay, by the time you're an adult, your, your brain's done cooking, you're done, can't teach an old dog new tricks, but it <laughs> turns out you can. The brain is more plastic than we ever realized. It's it's constantly changing. And so when we can give it new information and and sort of novel things to chew on, well, you know, we're, we're basically exercising a muscle and we can get those same exact benefits that the kids do. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about the helicopter uh, parents and such. Something I've seen, and this is, comes from a 30-year-old with no kids, but something I've kind of, uh, you know, witnessed amongst, you know, my girl, my girl, my sister is uh, seven years younger than me. So, I, you know, I watched her grow up and, and mm -hmm. could see how she was parented. You know, you can't really see how you're being parented, but I can see how my little sister is being parented. And now I have friends around me that are having kids. And it seemed like for a while with like, you know, the, you know, my sister's age and her friends, they were very helicoptered, very bubble wrapped. Right, and it right. seems like there's, there's a push now to go the opposite way. You know, my buddy just had a little boy and he's already trying to get him out there and doing, you know, all kinds of rough and tough and whatever stuff. And that rhymed way too much, but you know, it, it seems like the pendulum is, is swinging and I wonder if that'll be a good thing. I mean, I guess it'll be a good thing. You know, it's America is a very risk averse society. And of course, we're also a very uh, litigation prone society, yes. which the two together get a little crazy. Um, but, you know, sort of a case in point, you know, my son was born in Germany. Um, and of course, we were around a lot of Americans. And I, I remember when he was a toddler, it seemed like the thing that you did as a parent is you always took the knife away when you were eating at a restaurant. And I remember one of my German mom friends was like, why do you take the knife away? It's a butter knife. You know, <laughs> if he can't hurt himself with a fork, he's not going to hurt himself with that butter knife. Right. And I realized she was right. And then she was like, well, how is he going to learn how to cut his meat? How is he going to learn how to use it unless you give him the knife? Um, and I thought about that a lot because, I, I, you know, I wonder, am I really, you know, protecting him or am I taking away an opportunity for him to learn an important skill? Because at a certain point, I'm going to stop cutting his meat, you know, I mean, hopefully, hopefully uh, yeah. yeah. And what's funny about that is then just recently when it, we went out to dinner with somebody I didn't know very well, and she has a 12 year old son and, you know, she took away his knife and cut his meat at the table. And I, it was all I could do not to, I, I just heard my German friend in the back of my head, you know, saying, <laughs> see, this is the kind of children that are being produced in America, 12 years old and can't cut their meat. Um, 
and so I think it's really important. Kids need to get out there. They need to play. They need to, you know, sometimes hit their head on coffee tables or climb a tree and get stuck and require some assistance getting down. Yeah. Um, they need to be able to take care of themselves to a certain extent. Um, and of course, in terms of taking initiative, oh, you know, that's the hardest thing sometimes, you know, summer has just started down here and my mom friends and I are all like, oh my God, if our kids ask us one more time, what should I do now? What should I do now? Oh geez. We are going to go insane. You know, I, I don't remember being that way when some, I was free all summer without camps or whatever else, you know, we went outside, we stayed outside all day, yeah. we came back at dinner. Yeah. So. That, that was me. We, I didn't want to go to camp. I just wanted to go out, play with my friends, play basketball, whatever. Yep. And and come home as late as I possibly could. Yep. Nowadays it's like you got to do the day camps and then even still they're like what do we do now? Everything's scheduled. It's all play dates. Yes. Yes. That's actually going to be the title of my next book, The Art of the Play Date. <laughs> How not to go insane. Yes. I like that. And well, then we have to say The Art of Risk cuz that's when you start drinking. Drink one, everybody. Exactly. Um, all right. Let me qu- uh, qualify this question with a, with a hopefully quick story. Um, I, my girlfriend has a family friend who, by all accounts, you would consider a risk taker. Uh, he races motorcycles. He does crazy stunts on a wakeboard. Um, so physically, he's a risk taker. He also, uh, in life, is a risk taker. He is a contractor and decided at one point he was just going to pack up, leave, move to the Philippines, and help people build houses. But on the flip side of that, he thinks my girlfriend is insane because she sings on stage and rides horses. So I guess the question is, do quote unquote risk takers like him, uh, you know, admire or are jealous of quote unquote non risk takers or normal people? It all comes down to kind of what you're familiar with. Um, So for the art of risk, drink again. Yes, please. Um, I interviewed all of these high profile risk takers, the World Series of Poker champion, Steph Davis, who's this world renowned base jumper and free solo climber, uh, a neurosurgeon, a firefighter. You know, And when I talked to them, they all basically said some version of the same thing, which was, I don't really consider myself a risk taker. And you're like, um, so Cliff Bar just canceled your sponsorship right. because they said that you're too risky. Um, and they're like, well, okay, well, I don't take unnecessary risks. So a lot of that has to do with what you're familiar with and how you're, how you're vetting a situation. Um, the other thing I'll say, and it's a guy who was a firefighter who didn't make it into the book, um, but he was really fascinating to talk to. He was one of these totally macho, larger-than-life kind of firefighter guys. You know, he had all these hilarious stories of – because he was also an EMT. That's what they do when they're not fight, fighting fires, you know. Right. So all these EMT calls dealing with, you know, crazy people and, and what have you. Um, but somehow our conversation turned and, you know, I had mentioned that I had just filed my taxes and that, that I had used TurboTax. Me too. His voice, this deep, you know, growly, macho voice turned to the squeak. What? You filed your taxes? No. He could not believe that I had filed my taxes without an accountant. And here this guy who, you know, is just getting like, you know, one W2 or W9 or whatever, the one form, you know, you could do the easy form for IRS. is yeah. freaking out because I'm not using an accountant. And oh my God, what would happen if you got audited? The same man who was just telling me about, you know, kicking down a burning, you know, front door. Uh, so that he could go rescue a cat. And I'm thinking, 
there's something weird going on here. Yeah. So risk, I think, often is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and another thing that Steph Davis said to me, which I think was really interesting, is, you know, people only see the outcome. They don't see all the work that goes into it. And I think that's pretty valid. So, you know, um, your wife's or I'm sorry, your girlfriend's friend. <laughs> hey, you're getting married. You didn't even know it yet. <laughs> Surprise. Um, yeah. Talk about a risk. Um, yeah. You know, his, her friend that, that does all this stuff, he's probably been racing motorcycles so long and just pushing himself bit by bit by bit. He doesn't see it as nuts. I mean, what the original impetus was to get him into that, maybe he had friends that showed him how to do it, made it less scary, made it less, you know, seem like less of risk at the time. That was his intro. Then he kept going forward. It looks nuts to us, but it looks pretty sensible to him. Yeah. Um, and it was the same thing with the Army Special Forces operator, with the neurosurgeon, you know. How much training and work has gone so that they have these abilities? We don't see any of that. We just see them, you know, rescuing hostages from, uh, you know, drug runners in Colombia or opening up somebody's skull and tinkering about with uh, a scalpel. Yeah. Um, we don't see all the work that goes into it. That's true. Um, would you say that because risk takers aren't, you know, quote, the norm or normal people, do they get a lot of negative uh, labels thrown out? I know in your TED Med talk, you talked about your son asking you what's the stupidest thing you've ever done. Yes. So, you know, I think that's twofold. Um, so much of risk has a negative connotation, just an everyday conversation. And some of that has to do with, you know, the risks that we're trying to avoid. Incarceration, substance abuse, uh, physical violence, physical injury, death, of course, all things that we want to avoid. Um, but the thing is that goes back to this whole idea that risk-taking isn't a personality trait. It's a decision-making process. And of course, some people are a little bit more comfortable with it than others. I don't think that sensation seekers or people that need more stimulation in life, I don't think that they're more stupid or, or what have you. I think, you know, most of the successful risk takers I know, they are very smart. They are very thoughtful. They're actually big nerds. They kind of plan things out and they figure out and they have good equipment and they know what works and they know what doesn't work and they have a lot of experience. Hmm. And that's an important thing. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, when we talk about risk in the real world, we're not talking about those. Those are our hero types, right? We're talking about the Darwin Award winners. We're talking <laughs> about, you know, like people. Uh, it, 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 I mean, I hate to bring up this whole gorilla situation in Cincinnati because I feel like it's been beaten to death. Yeah. But it was amazing to me how quickly reasonable, thoughtful parents I know wanted to condemn these parents for letting this baby getting get into this enclosure. And I'm thinking, oh, God, you don't remember what it was like with a toddler, do you? You don't remember how quickly they get away from you um, and how easy it is for something like that to happen. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think so often risk does get talked about in terms of it's stupid, it's wrong, it's bad. Um, and the truth is risk isn't good or bad. It's, it's, it's necessary. It's an, an integral part of learning. It's an integral part of skill building. And really any decision you make, every single one, every single day has an element of risk involved. I like that. And I would say it's a huge part of society. There's no risk taking. There'd be no anything. Well, it's funny. People love that line. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Mm -hmm. Let's break that down. Do you know how you're going to die? 
do you know when you're going to die? No, you don't. And taxes, I can't figure out how much I'm going to, there's no rhyme or reason to that. So I I never know how much I'm going to owe until TurboTax spits out that number. That's right. Maybe I should get an accountant. Maybe the firefighter was right. (laughs) Maybe so. I hope not. I use TurboTax too. It's so much cheaper. All right. I think that's a, a perfect way to leave it once again and get ready to drink, everybody. The book is called The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. And if you want to check out Kate Sukel, I think I got that right that time. Uh, mm-hmm. Kate Sukel, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L.com, as well as a, at Kate Sukel on Twitter. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, I can't wait to uh, see the podcast of you doing that sober karaoke. Okay. <laughs> Keep waiting. Thank you so much again to Kate Sukel. got to get that right. For joining the show. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of nerdy talk, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Once again, the book is The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Take a drink if you've been listening. And her other book is This Is Your Brain on Sex, and you can find Kate at katesukel.com, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L, and on Twitter at Kate Sukel. Spelt exactly the same way. Imagine that. Uh, so once again, The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. I did that just so you guys can keep drinking. You're welcome. That's if you can still listen at this point. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Tell Kate how much you enjoyed her, if you did, by tweeting with her and all that good stuff. The guests like it when you uh, give them some feedback. I like it when you give me some feedback. So if you like the show, if you like any of the shows, let me know what you liked. Let me know what you want to hear. All of that kind of good stuff. You can do that by emailing me, I want to know pod at gmail.com. You can also contact me through any of the social medias at I want to know show on Twitter. On Facebook, it's I Want to Know Show. I Want to Know Show.com is where you can listen to the show. You can contact me. You can check out the guests section, like I told you at the top. And there you'll find links to Kate's book, The Art of Risk. Drink another one. As well as any other books we've talked about on the show or videos we talk about, anything like that. I always like to post there in the guest section. Just find the guest, as in Kate. You'll have the, the links to the book. You'll have the, the video we talked about, the Ted Med Talk. All of that kind of good stuff. So please check that out. I think that's all I have for you guys for now. So thanks again. Keep telling your friends. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.